0: If you're watching in black and white, England with the piping on their shot. He's still trying to point out that he's got the wrong coloured jersey on. I know Manchester United are famous for changing their strip a lot, but this is ridiculous.
1: Oh, give it. We're Manchester United, who are you? Uh, we'll be Spurs, sir, there's no clash of colours. Right, and it's Manchester United versus Spurs in this important fifth round cup tie here at Old Trafford. And it's the fair, slightly balding Charlton to kick off.
2: Hello and welcome to episode five of the Football Kit Podcast.
1: I'm Dennis from Museum of Jerseys. And I'm Les from Hull City Kits. In this episode, we talk to a giant of kit design, Craig Bugless, who's responsible for some of the most recognisable Nike kits, as well as some of the final Umbro designs for England.
2: And we consider a recent mashup by West Ham, but before that, Euro 2020 plus one is almost upon us, so let's consider the latest kits for the delayed tournament.
1: strains of Benny from ABBA's theme for Euro 92 there. But coming almost up to date, it's nearly time for the 2020 edition of the European Championships, albeit in 2021. There's a certain cognitive dissonance to still calling it Euro 2020, but we wouldn't want the logo unveiled in 2016 to go to waste or any of the already made merchandise. So Dennis, what has been the compelling Euro 2020 kit story before any of the games have kicked off?
2: Well, I suppose we've already discussed Russia um, having to have their cuffs redone by Adidas. It's been so long ago, it feels like it's from a previous tournament, but the more recent thing that has people up in arms, because people always have to be up in arms, is the Puma change strips, which are kind of uniform in a way, which is nothing new for a major tournament. There's countless examples, the Night Vapor for 2016, the most recent one, but people seem to have a big gripe with the the size of the Puma logo in relation to the the national crests. I think that's the the biggest, the biggest issue. I'm not overly exercised by it, to be honest. We, we complain when manufacturers don't change anything and everything's the same and oh, why is it so boring? So I think you can't really go over the top in terms of criticism when a manufacturer tries to do something different.
1: Mm. I think I applaud Puma trying something new. I'm just not particularly sold with the execution of it.
2: Yeah, like, and and I can see where you're coming from with that. I I do like horizontal stripes as a an accent. So the the Italy shirt I think looks really nice, especially as the colors make the flag. I think the Austria shirt is gorgeous. I think the Austria away kit is horrific because they have a lovely black shirt with. The, the flag, the red, white, red flag as the band and then the fucking turquoise shorts and socks. And people who saw the, the game against England, they might have assumed that Austria were just wearing a mashup because of the clash with England's navy shorts. No, that's their actual default away kit. The Switzerland one is nice. it You know, I don't think it, it's out of this world good or out of this world bad. I think they're OK kits. I, I just think. It, it, it's kind of hashtag against modern football to be complaining about the, the size of the logos when it's just something to get worked up about. Am I wrong? I don't know.
1: I think the only one where it looks jarring for me is one of the Switzerland shirts where the cross looks like an afterthought compared to the other elements.
2: Yeah, I get what you're saying. These things are always going to be a bit subjective, aren't they? I think, I think any Switzerland change kit would um pale in comparison with the 2016 one which despite kind of looking a bit like france 84 slash 98 slash 2010 it w- it was just a really nice uh really nice shirt and it's a pity it, w- it didn't have um more exposure well, I place I,
1: wearing I, it sure had exposure because it it's yeah yeah it tired, kept ripping.
2: It? one one thing maybe I, I would complain about as well is that and like i know puma fanboy by any means like I'm an Arsenal supporter, and I think I like two of the fifteen kits they made for Arsenal over five years. But the the Czech Republic one, it says Czech Republic rather than Ceska Republika, whereas the Switzerland says Swiss. The Italy one says Italia. So I don't know why the the Czech one isn't doesn't have the native language, mm. but presumably there's a good reason for it. And what have you found interesting?
1: I found the North Macedonia and Jayco Fuffle absolutely fascinating, where they've released a new home kit uh, for the tournament in late May, only to discard it a couple of days later because there's been negative fan reaction. So for some context, the, the German brand Jayco began supplying Macedonia in 2016, the team became North Macedonia in 2019 to distinguish itself from a region in Greece after a dispute about the name was resolved thanks to the United Nations. Now, naturally, Jako mm-hmm. wanted to give the Federation a new kit for the first ever major international tournament appearance. And the home kit they came up with featured an interesting decorative element, which was the head of a lynx on the lower part of the shirt front. However, the colour was somewhat different from the old shirt. It was... Not so much a much darker red, it was pretty much a, a different colour entirely, a maroon or a garnet, I'd say. And that raised the eye of the supporters who wanted it to match the red of the nation's flag. The
2: shade uh, reminds me of Chief Wiggum in The Simpsons, you know, where uh, the FBI are on the lookout for 1936 maroon studs Bearcat and it drives past Wiggum. And he's like, nah, that was more of a burgundy. But who who's getting the blame for this? Because... You know the point we made when we discussed the Russia one was that the association signs off on the kit. You know, it's not as if the manufacturer just says you're you're wearing this. So who was being held accountable here?
1: Well, initially the Macedonian Federation's president Muhammed Sedini, was quite magnanimous and he took responsibility. But since then each side has been laying the blame at the other's door. The Federation's designer Rahilia Iliev, is said to have worked really closely with Jayco and the links element is evidently down to him, but he's saying that the kit was red when he agreed on it and Jayco have since provided a much darker tone and for their part, Jayco said the Macedonian FA have got exactly what they've requested sort of feels like Jayco being hung out to dry here. But the decision's been made to retain the 2016 kits, which, for a five-year-old design, I think holds up pretty well, although there's no chance of them getting any replicas out. They'd sold out a long time ago. But it it just feels like Jayco getting the blame for a decision that the Federation signed off on.
2: Yeah, I I, I do agree with you on the 2016 one. It's still fresh looking and it, it's distinctive to Macedonia, which ultimately I think is what fans want with their kids. You know, they, they want something that's that's unique to them. I presume the, the rejected shirts would attract some interest.
1: Yeah, certainly if they become available. And one of the new shirts was presented to the Pope as a gift ahead of the release. So... You know, he's holding this now as a pretty rare shirt on his hands. Maybe we should keep an eye on the PayPal eBay account and see if he uh, tries to cash in on the scarcity value of the shirt.
2: (laughs) I'd love to to see what the feedback is like on that account. Do you have a favourite Euros kit that wasn't worn by a winning team? Because as we know, success uh, is often a, a big factor in determining
1: how good or bad a kit is. Yeah, the the default choice is normally Holland 88, isn't it? But for a team that didn't win it, I'd say the Germany 1992 away shirt. I, I loved that when it came out and I bought one. And I remember taking a load of stick from some Danes when I walked past a Danish seamen's church in Hull wearing one. And they evidently thought I was German rather than just a fan of the shirt who bought it from Allsports.
2: Uh, it, I think it was the, the strong jaw and the, the blonde hair gave it away, wasn't it?
1: <laughs> Perhaps not. What about you, Dennis? What was your favourite?
2: Well, obviously, I can't pick Ireland 88 because we won that before going we on to win the 1990 mm-hmm. World Cup. And I suppose the, the cheeky answer is to say West Germany 88. But it's, it, it doesn't really chime because it's considered the 1990 shirt rather than the 88 shirt, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But staying with that tournament, I do like the, the Danish one. And it, it, it was on a hiding to nothing because it was following one of the greatest kits ever uh, in terms of the Danish dynamite. It had two very low hoops kind of on the, the tummy, we'll say. Um, and I, my favourite version is actually the one against Italy where they wore change red shorts from the away kit and just gives it a better look rather than with the white shorts. It's a kit that would be immortalised in my mind because it was on the Subutio box for years. Um, a shot of Jan Jensen in that game. So that, that would be one I like. And then the Spain one from ninety six as well is, is one um, I remember thinking at the time it was it was a, a great design. I hadn't been aware of the Man United Admiral away kit mm. as a twelve year old, so it seemed like something really new. You know, it had one navy sleeve and then a navy panel on the left and the three Adidas uh, stripes in yellow. So I think I'll give my vote to that one.
1: Okay, So, as for Euro twenty twenty, what are your top three shirts for this tournament? I I'm a sucker for
2: simplicity slash classy kit slash plain slash boring, elite as applicable. In third place, I go with Sweden. I think it you know it's it's a solid design, but I think the navy added to the yellow and royal blue makes for a great um, color combination, kind of like. Uh, the European Ryder Cup team and then second pretty much the same template but different colors the Wales home uh I think the the cuff the cuff trim really raises that and it kind of calls to mind the admiral style and there's no condivo pattern or anything like that in the front which I don't think adds to any of the kits it appears on and then first place sticking with Adidas the Russia way uh like I said horizontal bands and a white a white shirt with two dark accent colors It it's you're pretty much onto a winner, and it, it just it looks great. I'll be interested to see how it looks in the pitch because I think it will have blue shorts and red socks. All white would probably look the best, I think, as blue shorts and white socks. But I can understand why they're sticking to their their flag layout. So what's your uh, one two three? Uh,
1: I'm not going to put them in order. I'm I'm just not going to do it um I know that they're essentially polyester polo shirts and the simple aesthetic doesn't really fit with the current trend of heavy graphic prints but I really like Portugal's home and the Netherlands away by Nike I think I think they're just beautiful they are essentially just polo shirts but they they look amazing and I also quite like Hungary's away shirt it's A really simple Adidas template, but because it uses three colours rather than two, and specifically the green panels under each arm, I think it really elevates it beyond what could just look like a, a teamwork kit. Joining us on the Football Kit podcast is a man who's outfitted World Cup winners as part of a stellar design career that includes working for Nike, Puma and Umbro. He's also supporting the kit designers of the future, co-producing a comprehensive course to develop the skills and knowledge of enrollees to design sportswear like a pro. That man is Craig Buglis and we are privileged to have him on the show. Thanks for joining us, Craig. Yeah,
2: you're
0: welcome. No problem. Anytime.
1: Craig, obviously,
2: as Les mentioned, you have a very wide portfolio and we'll discuss the earlier work with with Nike and and Puma, but I suppose we'll start at some of the later work you did with Umbro when you were a a freelancer. That was the second last Umbro England Home kit and then the the change kit that, that went with that.
0: You're jogging my memory there now. The way I always remember that kit was it was the David Hay away kit. That, yeah, yeah. Um, that we did at the time, and a couple of others that we did, like training kits and home kits that we did with uh, Peter Savile and various different things at the time. So yeah, it was um, certainly a good time to be involved in them because it was just around that time where Nike had acquired them, you know, and we were, you know, using some nice innovations and stuff, and kind of got a bit of a free rein, if you like, and just continuing the work with what they'd done with the whole tailored by umbro directly so yeah it was good good time
1: so somebody who expected to go into fashion design after you graduated in men's tailoring was working on the tailored by umbro range something that had a particular appeal to you would you say
0: if i'm brutally honest i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily say it was a tailored by umbro approach to it it was you know look i'm a football fan through and through so you get the opportunity to go and design your national football kit i mean yeah, it doesn't really matter what the concept is, you're going to go and take it on, you know? So, yeah, I've always maintained, you know, after I'd I'd worked at Nike, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, but, um, you know, you you design some of the best kits in the world and then, you know, you go from that to say, right, well, what else can I tick off the box? You know, I kind of had the chance to to design for Newcastle, but turned that down in favour to go and get a job at Puma. Um, and sadly that's never come back round and then the other one was obviously the national team designed for England so the desire there was just to, to simply go and do something really quite innovative for for the England team and um, yeah that was really the inspiration but don't get me wrong I mean what they were doing with the tailored by Umbro approach to it I mean I thought it was it was beautiful actually I mean I think the starting blocks had definitely been put there for us to continue on from, which certainly helped us kind of address that brief in a in an interesting way because it, it was very much centered around, you know, the fan. I think that's what my synopsis of who Umbro were at a of as a brand at that point was yes, they would make performance product, but you know, the fan was really important to them which you know if you go back through the history books the amount of stuff that they used to put onto england kits you know when you've actually worked in the industry you realize how difficult it is to do certain things like jackars and embroideries and you know all the different things that you can put on kits but the umbro team used to be able to just come up with these kits with literally everything on them you know like all these different details and it was quite nice with the tailored by umbro that kind of stripped some of that stuff back but it was still first and foremost you know with the fan in, in in mind if you like so yeah it was quite a quite a different approach shall we say to that of you know my previous lives if you like
2: that 2010 11 england home short it was it was different in a couple of ways the, the blue was more of a royal blue than the navy it also had Multicolored uh, crosses on the yoke on the back, and Peter Saville had some input. So, what was what was that like work, working with someone like him? And what drove the idea then of the multicolored crosses?
0: I'll come back to the Peter Saville thing in a second because you you, you raised an interesting point with regards to the colours that we decided to put England in. And at the time, I mean, look, over the years, I've always done crazy things and you know, well, what have turned out to be crazy things. At the time, I, I, I never really think of it like that. I always just approach a design brief and right? Well, where can I take this? How can I do this differently? And, you know, up until that point, it had just been red and then another red and another red. And I was like, you know, we've, we've got to do something different in the brief Came in, mean, oh, can we do the red and the white again? I was like, yeah, okay, you know, we can certainly explore. And it was just when I got my colored crayons out, as you do, um, and I just started playing around with it. And I thought, you know what? I quite like the idea of doing a really nice navy blue. We originally, the, the, the kit was all going to be navy, head to toe in navy. And I think that's what we presented quite strongly. And then it was felt that it was just too dark. And then we introduced the royal on, the collar and the shorts. And I actually think it was probably the right decision, to be fair, because it looked really smart. But, yeah, working with Peter... That was an interesting one. I think, to be fair, because of Peter's involvement, it probably gives us just that little bit of extra encouragement to to have basically the balls to go to the Federation and say, look, we're not going to put you in red and white this time. We're going to basically put you in a navy blue uniform, which historically over the years has had mixed reviews. But listen, I'm a massive Peter Beasley fan, so the reality is it's um, it's certainly a a colour that I remember growing up. So I was quite keen to do it. But I think, again, the focus I took with it was how do we make it a fan shirt? How do we make it something that someone would just want to wear with a pair of jeans? It is one of those kits to this day. I'm not a big kit wearer, but that England kit does come out from time to time um, because it is just a really nice kit to wear with a pair of jeans. So that was in the back of my mind when I was doing it. But obviously you want performance in there and all that sort of stuff. But the magic with Peter, if you like... Start to really come alive when we got into the training outfits and certainly the goalkeepers kits and the whole notion of celebrating um the st george's flag because whether we like it or not that that flag has got somewhat of a stigma to it you know going through the 70s 80s and 90s where you know basically football hooliganism was at its prime if you like and our flag was just being dragged through the dirt if you like because of what was going on in Europe and so on and so forth. So, you know, we just thought it was an opportunity to make that, you know, a flag for everybody. And I think Peter's vision on that was was kind of taking back the flag and giving it back to the people, so to speak. So hence the reason why it ended up in this whole multicoloured kind of directive. And then off the back of that, we, yeah, we just started playing around with it and come up with what I believe was some of the strongest goalkeeper kits and training kits that... England have done um so yeah I was quite proud of that and obviously working with Peter Saville I mean Jesus I mean the guy's an absolute legend you know I've I've grown up loving my music and the culture and you know I spent quite a number of years in and around Manchester Hacienda and all that sort of stuff so to actually get the chance to work with arguably one of my heroes who you know I used to do album covers for you know the likes of Joy Division and new order and all the other things he's done since then I mean yeah it just doesn't really get much better than that so I had to keep pinching myself every time I used to have to go and meet him but um, yeah just a really really nice down-to-earth guy and quite a visionary as well you know which certainly helped that kit at the time so yeah it was a privilege to work with him.
1: One of the features of the tailored by shirts was that they had a cotton layer on the outside which was a bit of an inversion of a lot of earlier shirts where they might have had a cotton fleece layer for comfort underneath the polyester. Did that inform the end result at all? Did it affect the shirt's performance in any way?
0: No, not particularly. I mean, the approach again that I wanted to take with it was you know, it's like anything, right? You go through your whole career, you start off doing certain things and you morph and you you kind of progress through your career and you understand how technology works and, you know, the balance between performance versus what the consumer wants and that sort of stuff. With that particular shirt, I wanted the hand feel to, to feel very soft and and kind of something that the fans would engage with quite quickly sometimes i think you know some of the polyester shirts as great as they are you know sometimes just feel too sportswear if you like and that standard punter who's going to be drinking a few pints with it on and sometimes i think it's you know worthwhile given given other fabrics a go and what we did with that is we put the polyester to the inside of the body so it would wick the moisture away so it was really quick drying on the inside of the body so it was still very comfortable but then to the outside the cotton uh, was placed so you had this really kind of traditional cotton look and feel which again i've always inspired of you know football kits of of yesteryear and certainly things like the 66 kits and you know all that sort of era you know where we were still wearing you know probably itchy cottons and stuff at the time but um you know, certainly in my mind, it was just kind of harking back to to yesteryear, making it a bit more modern with some technology on the inside. But it was, a, it was a kit for the fans. I mean, it most definitely was designed with the players in mind, hence the reason why it had all the technology and the, the, the articulation that we put into the garments and the way that we built the badges and all that sort of stuff. But I'd say out of all of the kits that I've ever done, that's probably the one that I would say the fans were more in my focus than, than anything else, really.
1: Okay. And you, you mentioned about the badge, there was a, a Crest concept that didn't quite yeah. final design.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, thanks for bringing that one up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was an interesting one because it's, um, again, you know, when I've worked for brands over the years, whether it would be, you know, Dunhill, Burberry, you know, all the brands I've worked for, one of the things that I really look for in a brand when I, when I work for them is provenance. And, um, you get a lot of that obviously when you're working and, in the sports industry because you're working with historical brands that have, you know, a history that's, you know, second to none in a lot of cases. And what's beautiful is a lot of that stuff is actually, you know, um, put into the history book. So you've got a you've got a reference point to go back to all the time. And in that particular case, because there was that juxtaposition of cotton versus polyester. So if you think of kind of lifestyle versus performance, um, you know, it was that whole kind of could we do a barge concept that was maybe in two layers? So could there be a, a performance layer to the outside and a more lifestyle layer? The lifestyle would take more of a modern barge, if you like. And then the idea was that was the traditional barge underneath. And we were playing around with concepts where the outer layer could have been a little bit more transparent. And, you know, how could we have the two barge kinds? Kind of sitting over the top of each other to kind of show the progression of the of the federation that didn't get off the ground. Nice concept in, in uh, in my brain, but I think in reality it wasn't it wasn't to be. So that was one that slipped away.
2: Speaking more generally, the the brand has to consider all the, the commercial imperative of of any product they release, and and like you mentioned there, how that England shirt was one more for the fans. But is the commercial side something that? Is in your thinking when you're designing a shirt, or do you design first and then re examine it?
0: Yeah, well, again, that's a really good question because I think if you'd have asked the Craig Buglis of 20 years ago, I couldn't really give a monkey's about the commerciality of it. You know, it was all about trying to make sure we made the best possible kits for the athletes. And, you know, when it came to the fans, you were thinking of the best possible solution for the fans as well but i think as you kind of grow through the industry and as you kind of grow up as a designer you realize that you know you can get to the point of commerciality by creating really something quite innovative you know but you don't necessarily have to throw the kitchen sink at it you don't have to be so crazy and so wild with your ideas and i think that's just you know when you work for these brands they kind of chip away at that Rough diamond, if you like, and they kind of smooth it out into what eventually will be a, a commercial designer. You know, so I think in the early days of my career, probably don't think about it quite as much. But the one thing I would always be thinking about was the athlete. That would probably be my my starting point on anything. You know, and I think that's what's paved the way to the fact that there's been a divide between you know, what you give an athlete versus what you give to the fan. And I am a massive fan of that, by the way. I know it's a little bit controversial because you pay a lot more money for the ones that you actually give to the, to the players. But the reality is technology costs a lot of money. And the investment that these brands put into that, whether, you know, it's putting it through various tests or whether, you know, it's using recycled polyesters or the technology of bonded seams or whatever that might be, you know to get that to the optimum technology that the athlete can actually perform their sport in and you're giving them something that you know it can't be bettered or it's the best at that given moment in time you're not really considering the commercial side of that if that's the right thing to do for the athlete if you want that team to lift that world cup in a kit that's designed by any one of those brands you are going to make sure that it's the best possible kit at that given time then when it comes to the fans yes obviously it give the fans the opportunity to buy that product but it's then making sure that it's commercial for those fans because the reality is you know most fans don't really want to spend 120 to 150 quid on a on a football kit they you know the one they're comfortable spending maybe 40 to 70 quid so yes the technology has to be changed a wee bit then so the commercial aspect of it is really important and i would say is you get a few more kind of stripes on your on your shoulders if you like you realize what that means because you know you can't design kits that are going to cost an absolute fortune because um, at the end of the day you know it's it's a football kit for for the fans to, to to wear but as I say my personal opinion when it comes to giving the athletes the best possible product there really shouldn't be a price put to it you know that's that's just my opinion basically.
1: so going further back then you're at Nike 2000 to 2005 their training program is is much vaunted what did you learn at Nike boot camp that stayed with you
0: Oh, that's a good one. I would say it was funny because I was having a conversation actually with um, a current client client that we're working with, and he asked a very similar question. And I think what what Nike gives you is an understanding of, of, of one how to create commercial product as I as I mentioned before. But that you know the the whole business is based on a mantra of there is no finishing line, so you're always striving to try and make improvements you know and and whatever it is that you do the season before you're always trying to better it and i always try and encourage you to look at ways of potentially making you know the athlete faster or you know their endurance better or whatever that might be and i think they just really teach you about you know keep the athlete in mind you know and and basically go for it within within that kind of category that you're working in so i think the learning from those guys was just very much keep the athlete in mind at all times you know always try and improve what is is that you you're doing for those particular um players and also just understanding the magnitude of the brand that you're actually working for you know you put a swoosh onto a garment and you got to believe that that garment's going to be one of those those items that are trailblazing you know that they're definitely you know in my opinion the leading sports brand by a country mile you know some of the kits i've not been a massive fan of of late but certainly out of most of the kits over the last 20 30 years or so for me they they, they are definitely the ones that i'm always looking out for first so you know I, i like I say, I think the boot camp bit is you know, understanding what the athletes want and just you know, having that discipline to make sure that you're solving solutions for them.
2: It seems strange you know, to think back like that Nike didn't appear at a World Cup until 1998. And in 2002, obviously, they had a lot more contracts. So was there a lot of pressure on you when you were designing those kits?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess there's always a little bit of pressure on them on the designers and the teams that work for them because you know they're signing some of the biggest assets on the planet you know and the events don't come any bigger than the world cup so you know clearly nike adidas puma all those brands want to see as much of a return on investment as humanly possible but the reality is when it comes to some of these you know these um these big events it's brand awareness it's getting your brand out there and Kind of coming out as top dogs, if you like, and it's it's always challenging when it comes to to the World Cup for the likes of Nike and Puma, because Adidas have got such a monopoly on on those events, you know, to the point where I think even at the current World Cups now, you know, they've got a five mile radius where no one can go anywhere near the stadiums to, with advertising or anything like that, and up until. You know, a number of, what was it, probably about 10 years ago, you know, Nike were challenging so hard that they actually stopped a lot of the federations from having their players head to toe in Adidas, even though, you know, some of those players were sponsored by Nike. So, you know, that that was an interesting one, which I'll maybe come back to later. But, yeah, with regards to the pressure side of it, yeah, you know, because with the launch of the first Brazilian kit, I think at the time Ronaldo was being... He wasn't having his best event, um, and I do believe that there was rumours at the time that there was, you know, some Nike representatives in the changing rooms at the end and making sure that Ronaldo went onto the pitch and stuff. But yeah, going into the the following year, there was a bit of pressure on us to come to the table with a new innovation, which we did. And yeah, you know, we kind of went in balls deep if if I can say that. You know, we we did quite a bit of jiggery-pokery to to those kits. You know, we had new fabrics, we had new graphics, new colours, you know, um, it was it was quite something. And looking back, I still, to this day, think, how on, <laughs> did I make some of those decisions? You know, but they we're all fairly well-founded, and, you know, I'd like to think that we did, we research well enough. Well, we did, because at the end of the day, they won the World Cup, so, <laughs> you know. i can can honestly see i did all right with
1: that one um speaking of one of those decisions then you, you took the decision to switch nike's output from a knitted fabric to a woven polyester what was the benefits of that
0: the long and the short of it is again going back to what i was saying earlier one of the things you're challenged with with nike is just making sure you know everything that you can possibly know before you put pen to paper before you start designing in front of athletes and presenting stuff so i mean at the time we were doing so much research, we'd flown over to Japan and Korea at the time when the event was taking place. We spent, you know, weeks there looking at local teams, what they were wearing, you know, tried to do as much research as humanly possible. And I think it was felt very quickly that a traditional polyester football kit was just gonna wet out far too quickly. And because it was so humid and the perspiration that would come off a player running it the speeds that they run at events like that you know frankly speaking there wasn't a fabric on the planet that was going to keep them dry so really the, the the way that we looked at it is you know how could we come up with a technology that would allow the cooling down process and the wetting out of the garment remain at, at, at a minimum as far as weight was concerned but at a maximum of trying to get you know ventilation around it Around the body, if you like, and we we felt that with the polyester fabrics, they were going to cling too much. So we started looking at some stretch woven fabrics that traditionally you would see, you know, on shirtings. And it was at the time I, I can't remember the shirt I had, but it was a shirt fabric that I'd seen, and I'd been playing around with it, stretching it, and and then I kind of got another kind of idea, which the team had been working on around two pieces of fabric effectively pushing air around the body so we'd started looking at that we got that into a wind tunnel we got it into the ait group which is for those who don't know what the ait group is at night it's the advanced innovation technology department which is an entire department of god knows how many people who are just devoted into coming up with ideas and working with ideas that someone might have to just basically prove the concept and we spent a lot of time geeking out on that, and that's what eventually became what we all know as Cool Motion. And the really the fabric decision to change it was part and parcel of that technology, and having something super lightweight, um, something that wasn't going to become too wetted out and would allow circulation around the body. So yeah, it was a again, you know, I talked about it earlier about making that decision back in those days you know it's it was it was quite a big deal because you're talking about the entire football department of nike's entire um arsenal of teams if you like completely changing into woven fabric so i mean i'm sure there was quite a few fabric mills extremely pissed off about it but then tory who was the the, the japanese factory that we used to um, manufacture the fabric it were you know in one case, I was getting stones pelted, and the other one, I was jumping into a helicopter being flown to Japan and stuff. So it was just one of those, a bit of a yin and the yang. But, you know, you, again, you're you paid to make these decisions. You know, you're paid to put your balls on the line and, and go for it. And I think myself as that type of character, I've always done that. Never shied away from taking a bit of a ballsy approach to things. And yeah, it's it's, it's what I've always done. When people are zigging, I'm kind of zagging to some extent. You know, that's something that I've always prided myself in doing and I'll continue doing until I go into my box in the ground.
2: The USA Kitman didn't get the memo as to why the two layers were important.
0: I think that was probably because I smashed a cake over his head when I actually presented it and we all went out and got hammered that night. I think that might have had something to do with it. But <laughs> um I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, there's... There's a few stories around where, where the where the players have actually taken the kits out. And I think, again, you know, without kind of pointing the fingers, I mean, I look at the end of the day, you know, I was responsible for part of, well, responsible for the design of that kit and responsible for a part of how it was manufactured, you know. But um, I think where we missed out on that is we didn't attach the two layers in certain areas. And I think that was the downfall to it. So, Because of that, I think a lot of the kit men were struggling to actually get the inner layers and the outer layers to align. And certainly when players were taking them off and throwing shirts around their heads as they did when they celebrated a goal, you know, it was really tough to get the kits back on, which actually happened at the World Cup and um, was the catalyst of the demise of that particular technology. But um, the reality is the technology worked. I think we just, yeah, we just hadn't, covered all the bases, which we just neglected to to pin the garment in a few different areas, which is a bit of sour grapes on my side, to be fair, just simply because I'd had the conversation with someone um, who will remain anonymous, but um, they'll know who I'm talking about if they do listen to this. And we had that conversation and it was one of those things that I was, you know, having sleepless nights about thinking you know this is something that we should address so I broke at that conversation with this particular person and he he rejected it and sadly for me he used it against us a couple of months later as the reason why we should be dropping it which you know even though we won the world cup with it it was quite sad really at the end because the, there was nothing wrong with the technology we just we just kind of missed a bit of a loophole in it so you know you definitely had teams that weren't really that keen on it, but we were just riding the same issue, you know. We neglected the pin it and this person was extremely stubborn and wouldn't go against it. So that's it really. silly.
2: As an Arsenal fan, I would obviously associate that kit era with, with the Invincibles. And that was the first Arsenal kit that had the, the, the new crest. And the, the crest actually added navy trim just as the colour disappeared from the home kit and the next couple of Arsenal Home kids had gold trim and yellow trim. Like, was there a lot of latitude in what Nike could do, as long as white sleeves were kind of uh, non-negotiable?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think what I would say is, out of all the brands that I've worked for, Nike definitely has has a lot of kudos when they walk through the door. At the end of the day, you know, it only goes so far. You know, I remember conversations that I had with David Dean actually when we were presenting what was now known as the Invincibles kit. And there was a group who had gone down to represent Nike, and I was presenting the kits to him. Really nice guy and, you know, enjoyed the time. And, you know, Austin was there and a few of the other guys and, you know, represent the home kit. Home kit went down fine. And then we actually presented a grey away kit. And I always remember David Dean said, you know, why are you presenting grey to us? We're, we're a happy club, you know, we're a sunshine club and um th- thankfully we had a, a yellow and blue concept up our back sleeve so we presented that to them eventually and yeah as you well know that was um part of that invincibles year as well so there's definitely a little bit of you know tune and thrown you know i think if you if you go in and and disrespect the club you'll soon know about it if you've done your research well enough you know you, you can justify why you've done certain things and you and we we thought we'd we'd done the the research in that particular situation, but um, I think David Dean had a different point of view on it. So you don't always get it your own way, you know. And certainly, you're always going to get that keeper who has a lucky colour or a lucky pair of pants or whatever it might be. So you just got to navigate around it and hope you get as best a result as humanly possible. But I think the main thing is. You know, you've really got to understand the history and the heritage of, of clubs. You know, disrespect it at your peril. Because not only will the will the current owners throw something at you, but social media nowadays will soon soon let you know. So it's um, it's just like I said, you've just got to make informed decisions really and, and make sure that you've got a you've got a very good watertight presentation when you go in and talk to these people. The strength of the brand will help you through it.
1: And the colours of the two thousand and two series of kits was quite a big deal in addition to the the two layer construction because you yeah, yeah. you had Brazil's yellow, Belgium's red, Nigeria's green, and they didn't make it to the World Cup. The the orange of the Netherlands shirt really popped. So how did you sell that idea to the Federation?
0: Yeah, well that that, that was a great one actually. And it's something that yeah, it was quite it's quite strange how it came about because, as you quite well said, you know the Netherlands didn't make it, but actually they were quite a catalyst to it all. And I've got to go back to my time working on the, the Barcelona kits when Van Hal was manager at the time. And um, we'd become quite friendly with a few of the players, but one in particular, a guy called Boba van Zenden. And um, we had a really good relationship with a lot of the Netherlands players And with van, we ended up doing the golden uniform um, for Barcelona. And that was quite a hit. And, you know, it was one of the best-selling... In fact, I think it was the only away kit at that time that had ever outsold the home uniform, which was, in those days, was just unheard of. But it was a really popular away kit. And I think off the back of that, we we did get the ear of Van Hal. So I remember we had him in the office in Hilversum in Holland. And uh, we were presenting... The Dutch kit too. And, yeah, it's one of these things when when you know you want to give something a particular colour, you present a, a couple of villains when you're presenting stuff. So you tend to do the safe option, something that's really crazy, but you know the next one you're going to pull out is the one that they'll hopefully go for. And in this particular case, I kind of said, well, look, this is where you are. It's quite nice. It's orange, and, you know, this is where we could take you, and it was a little bit duller. And then we just slapped on this day glow bright orange, and he was straight away, That's the one I want. I want that one. And that was the birth of Massive Color. So, if Lewis Van Hals listening to this, he was very much responsible for that color direction of uh, Massive Color in that World Cup, which is why I think, you know, he gets a bit of a, a hard press sometimes. But he was quite a visionary as far as a manager was concerned, because, you know, we talk about the Massive Color, but part of the reason for that and part of the reason for the bright slashes that go into that garment not only was it cool motion but it was all about peripheral vision as well so we've done a lot of studies around spotting players how you can recognize your players what angles that they can look for and so on and so forth so as we were doing a lot of training sessions for the with the players that's part of the reason why that bright color was used and the high contrast that you see on the kits I and mean, it was all to do with you know that this peripheral vision, and hopefully players can sp- spot their their colleagues a little bit easier, if you like. And that really then triggered, you know, massive colour for Brazil, massive colour for Belgium, and then obviously, you know, it, it's tough because there's not much you can do with white. Um, so the US, I think, we played around with a, an extra colour in their kits. So I think their kits were like tri colours on the body themselves. But then we also did the South Korean kit, which was kind of one of those unsung heroes, if you like, of of that uh, world Cup. Because I'm sure you'll remember, you know, no one was expecting them to do anything. And they absolutely, I think they went to the semis, did they not? You know, and and they kind of said it was all to do with the kit and the colour of the kit and the unity of the graphic and all that sort of stuff. And I mean, I was being interviewed. At like four o'clock in the morning because of time differences and all sorts with like local tv and radio stations and then eventually did this huge presentation which I thought I was going to go over to, uh, to Seoul to to present in front of you know maybe 20 or 30 people and I ended up doing it in front of thousands of people and there was like fans and press and federations and all sorts of people there and there was just little old Geordie boy running out onto a football pitch, presenting this kit to everybody. It was quite surreal, really, especially when I had to start signing autographs and stuff the next day. <laughs> when I'd realised mm-hmm. it'd gone out on live TV, which was a bit a bit mental. But, yeah, it was just part and parcel of that rich tapestry that I've been lucky enough to weave, if you like.
2: The next kind of direction then for Nike was the, the Total 90 template in 2004, one which is, is still very popular today. And the emphasis went from moisture transfer and airflow to comfort. And I think yeah. the tagline was zero distraction. So there was, yeah. like, terminally welded seams and no inner labels and the crest was on the outside. Like, is all that down to to player feedback? Um, and how much does that kind of consultation form part of the, the process?
0: Yeah, well, Total 90 was an interesting one. You know, we talked about, like, the commercial side of things. And at the time, I th- if memory serves me right, we had the mercurial boot which was all about speed and getting to the ball as quickly as you can super lightweight, blah 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 and then Total 90 was all about the midfield general, so it was kind of Roy Keane, you know all those kind of Patrick Vieiras those, those hard men that kind of sat in the middle of the park and commanded the field if you like and Total 90 was kind of born off the back of that really, it was all about as you say, comfort and creating products that we would build in a slightly different way so there was quite a lot of learnings from what we'd done you know the previous years with cool motion and stuff and by that time the technologies were advancing quite significantly then at the world cup 2002 we pretty much stitched everything together and there wasn't anyone really playing around with bonding of garments and then as we got into Total 90, we'd started looking at how, you know, how could we manufacture them differently? So we started bonding garments together. And as you say, you know, the transfers and everything became really minimalistic. So it was this whole concept of just zero distraction. So how can we give a shirt? So that basically players feel like they're they're playing the game naked. God forbid. But, you know, that, that was kind of the concept behind it, if you like. But as you... As you see through some of those kits, they kind of transitioned from those kind of sharp angles, and that was still quite prevalent in those kits, but we just kind of played around with them a little bit more. But the 9-0 was an interesting one because there was, at the time, there was myself as the creative director over football um, apparel, and then there was a creative director over footwear and another guy over accessories. And we kind of got together and, just outside portland actually in in the us and we were thinking about you know how we're going to take it where we're going to take it to and i think it was a guy called peter hudson at the time who was the footwear guy and clancy boyer was the other guy and you know we kind of toyed around with this whole nine zero idea and it was just three guys who kind of disappeared to come up with the concept and we thought yeah wouldn't it be great if we put a nine zero into a circle and see where that took us so went onto the side of a football boot, it then went into the inside of the kits, it informed some of the circles that you have on the back of the kits. If you remember we had a football that had nine zero on it with almost like a target approach to it, and it then be just escalated from that. I think even to this day it's been their most successful training apparel collection period in uh, at Nike. Which, as I say, was great, and then that informed the the graphic direction for the Oli campaign as well. If you remember that, and they mm. took the circular idea and it went into the Oli campaign. So it's, it's it's when you look back at stuff like that, you kind of sit there and you think, you know, Jesus, that was just three three guys just fanning around with a nine and a zero, and it was circling. And then lo and behold, look what happens. You know, and that's the sort of thing that goes down in the history books. And it's only when you get a little bit older and wiser, you look back and think, "Wow, that was actually some achievement." But at the time, you just don't really think about it. You're just like, "Yeah, you know, we've got to come up with a new concept, and hopefully, this one's going to do a bit better than the last one." And you know, and then you see the acceptance of that line being really well, and then suddenly it starts winning awards, and it's you know, best-selling product. And it's yeah, but by that time, you're on your next collection. You're like, yeah, "All right, okay." come up with the next one really yeah so that was quite a quite an achievement that one so quite proud of total 90.
1: So speaking of the next stuff then some of your later designs for Nike would have been used after you'd moved on so were you were you involved in Arsenal's 2005-06 kit which was a tribute to Highbury the the maroon red current colour? So that was something that
0: a guy called Matt Tussard, massive Arsenal fan so um he kind of come up with the concept, but at that point, I kind of was moving on. I'd kind of moved up the food chain a little bit, so I wasn't directly responsible for, you know, directing that as such. But certainly, it was under my stewardship. But I would accredit that probably more to Matt Asarden, who to this day still works for Nike and is still involved in that whole world.
2: You started with Puma right after your graduation. And then you returned there as creative director, um, later in your career. So, which kits of note would you have been involved with while you were there?
0: Um, well, actually, the first kit I ever designed was for Lazio, when I first started working for Puma. And I mean, please don't quiz us on that one because I don't think my memory will stretch that far back. But uh, you know, that was certainly my first kind of introduction into it all, and then. When I went back for the, my second stint, that was, you know, not too long after, you know, we'd, we'd had the success with Brazil. And I'd kind of come into the business right at the point where they were trying to commercialize the Italian kit, which they had actually partnered with Neil Barrett on. And um, it was actually my business partner, Rob, who was heading that whole side of Puma. He was overseeing all of the football um, side for the brand. and You know, when I joined the company, I'd I'd come fresh out of working for a surf company, as it happens. And at that surf company, we were bonding all of the board shorts. And we basically got a great relationship with a factory based out in Bangkok. And I basically said, right, the first thing I want you to do is bond a uniform of which Rob will tell you the story better. But I think he was down in um, Italy. You know, trying to get it all signed off and then basically had to go back in the room and say, oh, by the way, we're going to ask you to bond this now. But we did. And, you know, I'm glad we did because, you know, it was one of those kits where, again, it's gone down in the history books as um, being, you know, the next World Cup winner. So proud to say that, you know, it was like kind of back to back wins for myself, which, you know, there will not be that many designers out there that can kind of claim that fame if you like but I was just lucky enough to be offered the opportunity first to first do the Brazil kit but then you know get a another bite at it with Rob and we kind of worked on that one together Neil Barrett obviously had a massive influence on it you know but you know those unsung heroes if you like behind that was most definitely Rob Warner and uh, myself with the technology so yeah again a really great moment and you know, it was it was just again just one of those things that we were lucky to be involved in, and it all just kind of worked out. Yeah.
1: You ever thought about that? putting two stars above your signature to signify the two wealth? <laughs> <signature?
0: laughs>
1: yeah, I'm, I'm Lucky enough to sign my signature at this
0: minute. Yeah. You know, no one's no one's interested in that anymore, unless it's writing a cheque.
1: so bringing things right up to date then and you mentioned your partner in crime rob warner so your spark design academy is offering kit concept designers a chance to understand what goes into kit design beyond the simple graphic design element and potentially introduce them to employers how's that gone so far
0: yeah it's been great and it's it's kind of a passion project for myself and rob for two things one because we've Die-hard football fans and love designing football kits but also I mean there's a massive community out there of people who much like yourselves who are just absolutely daft about football kits and the origins of them and you know what's gone into them and what it's like to design them and all that sort of stuff so we just thought you know we've got all this knowledge you know of how to actually commercialize them how to make them you know what it's like to present them all the background that goes into designing kits and we just thought you know what this is something that we could share to this community and give them a bit more of a leg up if you like you know so that so the initial concept was just to you know figure out if if people were interested so we started just touting it around through twitter and our instagram feeds and stuff and the response was just ridiculous so we thought you know what we're probably on something here so we just started coming up with a concept of how we could do it and you know what we think the the, the public would want to hear who are into that that world and yeah it's been it's been great guns you know we've got quite a few people signed up and there's a load of them done projects which i must say i mean i'm just absolutely blown away by just how talented a lot of these people are but i think the one thing we were finding was we were finding loads of great kit designers so the visuals were really beautiful but there was sometimes there were lacking substance there were lacking the background so you know we were kind of through the course, you'll you'll see that we kind of educate them about informed decisions, what it means to design for athletes, and we talk about all the experience that we've had, whether it's, you know, working with Arsene Wenger, Alex Ferguson, Figo and his socks, and, you know, we just talk about all sorts on the course and just all our experience of, you know, what got us to basically design the kits we'd done and how we went about doing them, and then we kind of pay a little bit of homage to, kits that there are today and you know there's a lot more to come for it you know we're we're going to be starting a blog soon we're doing more courses around it you know we're going to start analyzing more kits and stuff so yeah we're just the idea is just to try and you know get a bit more out there with it all and talk to more people and offer some more opportunities to talk to do a bit of training and you know we're going to get it translated into a multitude of different languages as well because we're getting a lot of people from japan and South America really interested in it, so yeah, we're just going to keep pushing it. And then we've got other things going on, like we've got presentation skills courses, and you know how to build those presentation, those presentation formats, and then how to present it. Because you know that's one thing as well. It's you know you talk about how to design the kits, so you do all your research, you design all the kits, and then what? You know you've got to present it to the likes of David Dean and Alex Ferguson, uh, you know van halen all those sorts of people oh you've got to present it in front of two thousand people in the middle of career you know so first and foremost you've got to have a an absolute stellar presentation so you know what we what we thought was important was to to kind of close that loop if you like so you know there's loads coming um through the spark design academy and it's just our way of of giving back a little bit and you know sharing the knowledge that we've had and you know that a lot of people might not be as fortunate as me and Rob have been to uh, be able to do what we've done.
1: Craig, you have absolutely dropped knowledge during this discussion. Thanks very much for your time. And of course, no yes, problem okay. at all. Yeah, Appreciate so it. Thanks,
0: guys. Oh,
1: Lord, the So, West Ham for the mashup this time. Don't they usually switch to blue shorts and socks when the white sets clash?
2: Yeah, they do. It's a a fairly common staple in their kit history. And they they did it in the season, just gone as well, um, away to Everton as one example. The away this season is the the classic 1960s-inspired all blue with two claret hoops in the shirt. So the shorts and socks were used at Goodison with the home shirt. But that was one of three home kit mashups, or should the plural be mashes up, I don't know, in, in the style of attorneys general.
1: Mashai, perhaps, like cacti?
2: Yeah, we could claim maybe that mashups were an invention of the Roman Empire, perhaps. So that's the, the Latin influence there. But when only the socks clashed, so when they played a team with dark shorts and white socks, as against Spurs in that famous 3-all draw when they were 3-0 down, they used claret socks. And then coming towards the end of the season, away to West Brom, who have white shorts and navy socks, West Ham wore claret shorts and white socks. So that meant that with the home shirt this season, they wore three different sets of shorts and socks, uh, which is it's kind of unusual, um, but good to see for a mashup lover. lover.
1: Mm, I kind of like the claret socked look. I thought that worked quite well. So for 2019-20... The home kit had claret, shorts and socks. Were they the ones that they used as a backup the season just gone?
2: It's a far from outlandish theory. It's a logical question really. But no, these were actually claret versions of the new home white shorts and socks. They're subtle differences if you look closely enough. As I did because I was trying to illustrate them as accurately as I could. But last season they also had three sets of shorts and socks. Because the home, like you say, had claret, shorts and socks. And the away was all white, but with both kits, the backup shorts and socks were sky blue sets. So I remember away to Manchester United, they wore white shirts, sky blue shorts, white socks. They played Oxford, I think, in the League Cup, and they switched to blue shorts and socks with the home shirts. So again, some nice, nice, uh, nice switching up while keeping their traditional colors.
1: Hmm. So Claret shorts and socks. As the default was a first, then
2: together, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think they would ever had claret shorts as as the first choice. There had been a few occasions where they had the white shorts and claret socks. Usually, obviously, they have white shorts and socks. And actually, last season's setup was kind of influenced by a forty-year-old mashup because the away kit, the all-white away, was based on the nineteen eighty FA Cup final kit when they beat Arsenal. That was a mashup of the away shirt, home shorts and socks. Because West Ham had actually won the toss for colours that day, but they decided to play in the all-white that they'd worn in the semi-final against Everton, who wore all blue. So the actual away kit that season was white shirts, sky-blue shorts and socks. They switched against Everton, felt it was lucky, kept it against Arsenal. But because Arsenal had lost the toss, they had to then wear... They're away kids, so you had both sides in their away. Arsenal could maybe have worn their home shirts, but they'd have had to wear dark shorts because shorts cash wouldn't have been allowed. So we had all white against yellow and blue, and West Ham came out on top.
1: Mm, West Ham wearing blue shorts in that game would have looked quite interesting, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's funny how. Famous famous imagery is lodged in our head, and it's hard to think of it as being any different. You know, to hark back to what we were saying with the Euros, Marco van Basten's goal in '88 will say in the all orange that was the only time the Netherlands wore the kit like that. They only wore that short five times all in the tournament, and the final was the only time they had the orange shorts. But it's the one that sticks in our heads.
1: That's all for episode five of the Football Kit Podcast. We will return, no doubt, to discuss the kits of Euro 2020.
2: Thanks to Craig Buglis for his time and insight. We would highly recommend checking out sparkdesignacademy.com for his Football Kit Design course with Rob Warner. And thank you for listening.